0: Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We are in another COVID 19 remote edition of the podcast, talking remotely uh, with the uh, Tim and Connor of Cellar Maker Brewing in San Francisco, California. Welcome to the podcast, Connor and Tim.
1: Thanks for having us. How's it
0: going? In the new issue of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, the IPA issue, which uh, is should be out by the time that this podcast airs. In fact, it will be uh, shipping the week that this podcast airs uh, and arriving in people's subscribers' homes, etc. Uh, we've got a fantastic article that Connor penned on brewing Hazy West Coast IPA along with a recipe that he shared with us. And so that spurred my thought that uh, we should also have a conversation here on the podcast about the same Talk to Cellar Maker about uh, what they specialize in, uh, everything from uh, a fantastic language around hops selection to their approach to dry and crisp, but still juicy and fruity uh, IPAs, uh, both of the West Coast uh, Persuasion, hazy and not hazy. Uh, Looking forward to talking about this because, to be honest, we've watched this kind of resurgence of West Coast IPA coming in force now this year in particular. um, And... You know, pursuing this issue of the uh, this year's IPA issue is very kind of pointed to see how IPA, even from the of the West Coast variety, has continued to change, respond to some techniques, approaches, flavors, etc. Um, you know, pioneered even you know in other styles of IPA, um, but kind of bringing it into the fold and uh, rethinking what it can be while still maintaining that kind of dry, crisp, and fun uh, West Coast approach that we love. Anyway, we're gonna dig into that. Before we do that, uh, nearly 2,000 breweries across the US, Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GD ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River and Cossie Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more, trust GD to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at GDChillers.com. Also, brewers seeking amplifying malt and distillers hunting down delicious base options welcome Gambrinous Rye Malt as their malt choice. This rye malt gives spicy, and bready notes with suggestions of vanilla and sweet dough. It strengthens mouthfeel, viscosity, and head retention combined with flaked oats or wheat for IPAs and is a solid base for a wide range of distilled spirits. Learn more about gambrinous rye malt at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact bsg at 1 800 So, Connor and Tim, um, Talk to me a little bit about uh, how you all got into this world of brewing, uh, how you decided to kind of pursue this as a career, and then, of course, launch Cellar Maker Brewery in San Francisco.
1: Well, um, Tim and I met each other in 2010 or 2011. About that. Um, I was working at Marin Brewing Company in the front of house, and uh, Tim was brewing beer, and uh kind of two different worlds in a a lot of ways you know one person's facing the public and the other person's cranking out the good stuff in the back and um we started talking after i'd probably worked there over a year before we really even had a conversation you know it's almost it's really two different worlds and um started talking about you know oh i want to open a brewery and a lot of people wanted to open a brewery at that time and and they still do and um, we really aligned on so many of the same kind of ideals and, and the direction we wanted to take it. And um, kind of as, as is mentioned in the article, we were kind of looking at what was happening on the East Coast. Um, and, and I feel like a lot of people on the West Coast were kind of like, we've been doing this longer. We've got our ways and we're going to keep cranking what we're doing, which is totally cool. And I, I love those beers and, and whatnot. But um, we kind of wanted to take some influence and, and almost like hybridize the new energy with with the we like to call it like one foot in the past one foot in the future um, you know paying homage to to what was there before us but also uh, you know being open-minded I
2: working in the back of Marin was like my first real brewing experience um, it was where I cut my teeth where I learned you know how to pull yeast and how to dry hop tanks and uh, I spent a good amount of time there um, and this was kind of before People were discussing beer heavily on the internet. Um, And, and, you know, you can find a lot of inspiration by searching the web and and going into these forums and connecting with people. So I was kind of like in my own world doing this thing and, and, you know, and loving it and and learning a lot. But I feel like after about four years at Marin, uh, I was starting to lose a little bit of steam uh, until I went on a trip. To the east coast back home i'm from the east coast but back there and really started exploring some of the breweries out there and seeing what they were doing differently out there that the west coast was doing and um i mean exploring flavor profiles like they do and and, and especially in hoppy beers where the, the body was bigger flavors were juicier the bitterness was lower that was really eye-catching and um, I got really re-inspired by seeing what they were doing out there and going to Hill Farmstead and seeing what Sean was doing. Um, so when I came back and Connor and I started talking, like he said, we were kind of like both amazed by that movement and uh, ready to take it to the West Coast.
1: I was a little bit of a nerd, uh, so I was trading beer. And you know, I, I brought up Hill Farmstead, which in 2011 in California, wasn't exactly a household name, you know, and I was kind of like, you know, there's this brewery in Vermont and their IPAs are so aromatic, but they're so fruity and they're, they're, there's, you know, they're not, they're not not bitter, but they're not ripping bitter like the West Coast IPAs. And, and then Tim was like, "Yeah, I was just out there like two weeks ago, dude. You know, and I, I know exactly what you're talking about."
0: So <laughs> this was still early days; they were what a year old at that point, or maybe a year and a half in 2011. Totally, you know. So, so it's one thing to have this idea about what you want to make, and it's another thing to say, "Hey, let's go start an entire business about it and do it in a pretty expensive uh, market like San Francisco and go high risk." Uh, talk to me about some of the steps between that idea of let's go create this, and uh, you know, how then you were able to kind of make the business become a reality.
1: You know, I guess when Tim and I had started talking, I was kind of already in, a business plan was written, money was, had just started to get raised, and uh, I was kind of jumping all in regardless. I was, I was like, I'm going to find a brewer, uh, I'm going to run the business side of this, um, I, I, had worked at city beer store for a couple years as well. And, and that was a really cool experience for me to really just, it, it was just like a constant, um, data set, you know, I, the, the, when I started working there, I was kind of like, I was thinking, you know, there's so much IPA, the world doesn't need more IPA. Maybe I'll do these like, you know, fruit beers and herbal beers and, and, and forage, you know, this and that. And then I just watched those two or three IPA fridges just get pillaged all day long and i'm like you know we're we're, we're getting beer shipped from distributors in socal and san diego and shit where they'd be right. eight months old 12 months old and and i'm like why are we selling this garbage and it's it just it's how the system was you had to demand more of it the only brewery that was really um you know full had this freshness thing going was russian river and it was just sheerly because of demand we, you know, you get the delivery on Wednesday, it's sold out by Friday. Some days, some weeks, it's sold out by Thursday. Um, eight cases, boom, you know, and you know it's fresh. And I think a lot of people weren't necessarily connecting the simple dots of, so I really like this plenty beer, but it doesn't hurt that it's also three days old and I'm drinking it. I don't know how aware that many people were. So that kind of really set something off in my brain of like, hey, if we just get really, really crazy about freshness, People aren't necessarily going to understand why they like the beer so much, but it, it certainly helps that the aroma rips. And why would we serve anything that's over two or three weeks old? There's really, there's, there's, just get another beer behind it, you know?
2: I have to hand it to Connor. He was dead set on having a brewery in the neighborhood we're in, or at least around it. He knew that people, uh, you know, if we, if we followed this model of freshness and highly hopped, and, you know, at working at City Beer Store, which is not far from here, he knew people would come out here. Either they're working here or they're living somewhere else in the city, but they would make the journey to what's kind of like not the greatest neighborhood in the world uh, to drink, you know, world-class beer.
1: In a garage. In a garage, <laughs> yeah.
2: And, you know, and it's, it is expensive. Uh, it's not the biggest spot in the world. I wish I had three, four times the space, especially these days. Um, but it is what it is, and it's been beautiful for us. So, um,
1: I. I, I we're not complaining. We're happy to be here.
0: And so, so the idea of freshness, and the idea of being able to deliver beer hot off the presses, if you will, you know, was kind of a core formative idea for this. Then that, uh, you know, the uh, wasn't to make as much as you can; it was to make just as much as you need to sell in the time frame to make sure that uh, people can experience it the way you want them to experience it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we started with four ten barrel fermenters. So at the time, you know, as a brewery that has no reputation and nobody knows they just kind of go oh it's you know the person from this place and then a a person from this place um that seemed like a lot of beer at the time i'm looking at it going you know this is 1200 gallons of beer like is this too much beer who knows um we talked a lot about should we do a seven barrel
2: system or a 10 barrel system you know and i wish it was a 20
1: (laughs) you know or a 30 so um you know, you live, you learn. You, you can go way too big, and, and we've all seen plenty of breweries that go too big, breweries that go too small. Um, I don't really have any regrets because, really, the 10 barrel size has allowed us, there's been a lot of stuff over the years, you know, like the HBC varieties, and, you know, when we got a crack at, you know, Equinox, before, you know, all these varieties before they existed, they're not giving you a pallet of that stuff. You know, you're getting 22, 33, 44 pounds. We're right at that size where, you can make a real batch of beer with it, but it's also, you don't need that much of the raw ingredients, so no regrets on the 10. The beer moves fresh. I definitely know that the breweries that have 30s and 40s are kind of like, oh, our, our batch of IPA is on tap for about a month, and um, we always just target about 16 days. So, you know, and it's always give or take depending on customer reaction and, you know, just how busy things are in the tap room.
0: Sure. These are always like the, those hindsight questions where, um, you know, I, and I love it when new when folks that are trying to get into the world of brewing spend that same amount of time trying to figure out this question five or seven or 10 or 15, um, you know, and of course, the the logic is always driven by the successful brewers that people talk to when they're asking it for advice and that advice will typically be get a bigger one go bigger go bigger because you're just going to upgrade later um, and you never really talk to the folks that are going the other direction and um, you know are hamstrung by a system that's a little too large for that you know just because they're they're in a different position so you know history gets written by the winners and so and uh, you know and so that advice tends to kind of fall in one direction but but you're right. I think there is you know if there's one commonality among brewers i talk to it's that even though it's completely inefficient to start smaller there is something that's learned through that process of brewing often and um and being able to learn and grow by brewing all the time is something that helps you as a professional get to um, and build that kind of skill and that flexibility and that understanding of your ingredients later on um Speaking of ingredients, I want to you know start talking about hops because, of course, that's now what you all are so well known for. But before we do that, with nearly 20 years of innovation and experience, Brumation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions. And automated controls for the craft brewing industry. From half barrel to 30 barrel systems, Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brewmation has you covered. Visit them at Brewmation.com to get started. Also, born out of a basement in Milwaukee a decade ago, Spike has grown to become a leading manufacturer of premium quality brewing equipment. So if you're looking for a reliable system for home or a commercial-grade nano for your brewery, this is the time to buy. Spike is offering craft beer and brewing listeners special 10% off all three-vessel system purchases while supplies last. Visit spikebrewing.com slash craft and enter the code CBB at checkout. Spike Brewing. Pursue what's possible. So, you said before that hops and uh, IPAs were not necessarily initially the focus uh, in the formative phase of the brewery, but certainly it's become what I think most consumers, fellow brewers, and others know you for and respect you for. Um, You know, as you got started, hops were also in a kind of formative stage. And over the last decade, we've watched incredible changes within within the world of hops uh, talk to me a little bit about how as you were getting into the this uh you know brewing world in a professional uh capacity that you built your understanding of how hops work in the brew house and developed uh, a means of evaluating hops to, and you know so that you can then conceive of and build from them we started off um uh... You know, I didn't have a
2: lot of experience personally. Uh, We at Marin, it was opening up a bag of hops that the company, whoever you bought it from, sent to you. We didn't do any type of selection. Uh, So I knew what good hops kind of smelled like and I kind of knew what bad hops smelled like. But there was no more thought that was put into it because we didn't have the, the financial means. We didn't have the connections to do that. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on at Marin that like, you know, that needs to be focused on. So we didn't have the time to really do it.
0: And that was generally normal in that world of brewing at the time. You know, it was, there were some brewers that were hyper focused on this, but they were a vast majority, minority at the time, you know, some brewers that would. Build some direct relationships with hops growers, but but you know you can count them on two hands. I think you know back at that time it
1: was generally pretty regional. So the closer you were to the source, you know, to Yakima Pacific Northwest brewers were just kind of like I think it made more sense because they're like you know it's it's only three hours. I might as well go check it out and see what I can find. And and then of course you've got the big breweries like Sierra Nevada and. I'm sure Bells was selecting Centennial before hop selection was a term amongst smaller <laughs> brewers. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, I remember. I think we got kind of got lucky. We were buying a lot of New Zealand hops and, and a lot of Australian hops. So initially, those are all pretty good. Smaller farms, smaller amounts. Um, but but ultimately, I remember about it's probably five months in or something. Uh, we we had a very simple but tasty West Coast IPA called Hopkilla that was like a Simcoe Citra thing, and it was so good batch one that we made it again two months later, and I remember it just being like really kind of musty, like kind of had almost an oxidative quality, like a like kind of a, a stanky basement kind of thing, and 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 I remember saying like Hey Tim, like what do you think's up with this?" and he's like, "The Simcoe's weird." So we go smell the Simcoe, and you know, now looking back on it, it's all common sense. But it was almost kind of like we figured it out a little bit just from, you know, trying to pay attention to, to identifying the problem or the weak point, weak link in the beer. And, uh, and then we we're like, well, this Simcoe sucks. And then then simultaneously, you know, Row 2 Hill 56 had been a thing, a brand of Russian Rivers for a couple years. And you read this romantic story about Vinny and Jason Perald, and, you know, you drink Row 2 and you're like, this Simcoe crushes it every time. How do I get that Simcoe? So, you know, we started emailing our Yakima chief rep, uh, and basically, initially, the first thing we did with them before we ever did selection, I just said, I want Jason Perot hops across the board. And they were super kind of, I don't know how stoked they were initially, because this tiny little brewery without very much buying power is kind of swinging around saying, hey, you got to take care of me, and I want the good stuff, and... Um, the first selection we ever did was all all they gave us was five lots on paper with just the stats of the different oils and we were talking to our buddy Nate at uh, the the brewing network uh, Nathan Smith and a couple other people like can you turn this into anything you know like you know some of these are better than others but really like you just got to smell it Um,
2: there was no roadmap. we really I think developed our own path on how to figure out you know every year how to get a little bit better how to get better hops uh you know started really paying attention to lot numbers and if we came across something that we really liked hey can we just like get you know subscribe to that lot number and sometimes they say yes sometimes they say no. usually they say
1: no and then we would just be i'd be like well fine here's my credit card number give me a pallet of that simcoe and we would and and on a cash flow front that sucked you know but we were also like every simcoe beer for the next four months is going to kick ass
2: but it was so much better using that one awesome lot than getting random stuff in the mail that sometimes was even better but most of the time was not and uh I remember talking to brewers about this some years ago, and I think we were, I don't know if we pioneered that idea of just like buying a ton of a hop that we really like, but definitely some uh, jaws hit the ground or like, wow, I never even thought of that. Um, But you you just, like I said, you gotta do what you gotta do. Um, I think once you pester people enough, unfortunately they start to pay attention a little bit more and realize, well, these guys, they really do care. They're annoying, but they care. And that's that's big points with them
0: every hops company is going to hate us after this oh yeah the solution is just pestering your uh your hops vendor <laughs>
1: <laughs> well there's more transparency though that's happened in the last you right. know five six right. years and even smaller breweries are able to go up and do a group selection and depending on the vendors that you work with like Hollingberry and son smaller hop supplier they were the first people that brought us in and allowed us to do selection and They were like, I don't care that you're only spending, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 grand with us a year. Um, You came all the way up here, you know. So here's the table and here's 10 centennials and check it out. And I mean, that moment right there, I think for Tim and I is where you smell the worst three and you're like, I sure as hell don't want these. You know, like I'm okay with the middle. And then there's one or two that are just totally rewriting the book on everything you knew about that variety and you're like this centennial's got big pineapple like I don't get that in the stuff we randomly buy so again I want this all the time like let's let's if we get a every single variety we get is is top notch top 10% across the board uh, I'm pretty I think it's pretty obvious that the beers are going to taste better
0: now you know I mean that raises an interesting question for me and there's this idea of quality but you know, quality runs a wide a gamut based on what you are actually looking for in that kind of flavor. And so, you know, for you, define. I mean, there are some things if you're looking for, you know, a, a pineapple character in a hop and you instead get diesel and dank, then clearly that's just not what you're looking for. Um, but then at the same time, sometimes there are smaller amounts of those other characters that can, you know, provide interesting layers of complexity to a beer. Uh, and then, of course, if you're Bells, you're not necessarily looking for that most awesome fruity centennial. You're looking for a very consistent centennial that tastes the way that, you know, people expect it to taste within the scope of your beer, Um so you know, talk to me a little bit about that challenge between kind of consistency uh, of expectation in a hop versus celebrating these kinds of outlier uh, things that you may come across here or there, and then stock up on, but then also not be able to replicate necessarily in the next crop year or the crop year after that. Also, we can kind of work from there and talk about how you know that year-to-year variation and how that impacts the way that, uh, you know, you guys then build, revise and, and change recipes.
1: So I would say the beauty of not really having brands, especially at that formative point of our company, um, we didn't really care about a hop being to type. Uh, if, if I remember we've bought mosaic, that's like super limey before that has nothing to do with mosaic, but it was an awesome hop, whatever it was. And you know, that it's only going to be around for two or three months but you embrace it and then you move on. So it's, it's kind of like celebrating the fact that this is an agricultural product. There is going to be variants year to year. We don't have a brand where people have an expectation of a flavor. And we also don't mind even within the quasi-brands. And by that, I mean dra- at that time for us, it was draft-only beers that got brewed more than, I don't know, three three times a year would be a, kind of a brand. I, I don't think we really minded that they, they would kind of sway – differently depending on what lots we had, what hops. Um, I think we do have
2: expectations to a certain degree though, where there is an ideal mosaic maybe for us. And I think Connor and I could agree on what that might have. Um, But we are always open to being wowed by something new and different. And yeah, if you get that ideal mosaic on the table and then you get that really different but awesome mosaic, then we're gonna try to talk our ways into getting both of them.
1: and, And furthermore, something that we've been doing since I think our first or second year was when we would have all these lots and some of these would be off type. And then one is that classic mosaic. We would say, Hey, when we make a single hot beer, it's a little boring with one lot. Even if it's a really banging lot, we have this limey mosaic. We've got that classic kind of blueberry resin pine tree mosaic. And then this one's got this cool dried apricot character. Well, let's layer them in 50, 25, 25, with the classic leading the charge, and this beer is gonna be layered, cause it does have different lots in it, it doesn't have multiple varieties, but uh, I think it tells a better story, and we kind of almost, you know, we're very close to uh, Sonoma, Napa, the whole wine world up here, and a lot of the best wines up there, you know, they're not getting a single Pinot Noir, like it's, if they wanna make really good stuff, generally, I mean, those are really good, and they're expensive, and they're nice. Um, But kind of the bigger spots are are blending multiple to really round out uh, and tell the story of that variety. The variety name is just that. It's just a name, right?
2: At, at, At any point we have of the main hops that people use these days, we deal with two upwards of five lots of each. And we really I mean, there's usually a superstar and then maybe two superstars if we're lucky and then maybe one or two other lots that are really nice and pleasant so we'll let the superstars kind of take the lead they make up 60 70 80% of the beer and then we'll sprinkle in the uh you know other 10 to uh 40% with the other lots just to add a little more variation
0: it's such an interesting idea here and and one of the things i love is that you know, these different modes of brewing, you know, that brewing doesn't have to be one thing. It is not, it can be about consistent brands and consumer expectation, you know, produced in a consistently large scale. It can also be something that is you know like a, a chef driven restaurant where the menu is determined each night based on the freshest fish at the fish market or the vegetables that are in season at you know at that point and who's growing what and what they have access to in that given week in a lot of ways, you are operating more like chefs in that sense of reacting to what you have and building the beers that you want to make because of the things that are available to you and that are inspiring you, um, rather than this consumer expectation about producing some consistent thing that uh, that people always want. Um, and both of those modes are valid. Ne- you know, Neither are they're, they're, they're wrong. They're just different modes, and we can in- accept and embrace both of those. Um, But speaking on of this kind of blending hops from of the same variety in different lots, uh, you know, in the in our IPA issue, you all sent us uh, some wild gooseberry chase, which had, I think, what, five lots of Nelson in it. Um, Walk me through how you how you come up. Like, how would you define a, a superstar version of that versus your kind of bit players? And how do you articulate you know, in some sort of language that you can both commonly understand, you know what what these definitions are.
1: Well, I mean, part of working with freestyle farms in New Zealand, it's kind of like having a relationship with a butcher. Um, you certainly are able to select half with them, but generally, you're going to get some of the other lots that maybe weren't your first or second choice, um, and that doesn't bother me because Tim and I have been surprised multiple years where a lot we didn't love on the table actually ends up being great, and something we've learned with Nelson, and with Nelson specifically, but other varieties as well, is that a little bit of overripeness on the selection table, um, there might be a lot that is a little more pleasant smelling, and just fruit and floral, and and none of that dank even leading into overripe, Um, you know, something we like to call grit sometimes. Uh, The grit translates into a better punchier beer and you sacrifice getting a little bit of dank in there, um, but it punches so much harder in the beer. So lately we try to find our if our comfort zone is like a five on a one to ten is a five. We try and hit that like six point five with a little more grit than we're comfortable with. And and don't act like we're selecting something at the dispensary per se for ourselves. But but actually like we're trying to get something that's a little bit more over over the edge, so to speak.
2: We're still learning a lot about, uh, you know, selecting hops, what you pick on the table, what you actually get when you open that bag, um, and so for our single hop beers, you know, like Gooseberry Chase, uh, Connor mentioned, like there's going to be some expectations and things you didn't expect, and you kind of run with it, and you know, for designing these beers. Uh, you're going to have that favorite lot. And, I mean, I think, again, it goes back to having that kind of what is your ideal version of that hop and using that as the um, as the base for the beer. And then uh, it all depends on what that hop brings. So our, our favorite lot of Nelson right now is pretty fruity. It's got some nice white wine character. Uh, it's got some kind of uh, st- uh, like grape stem edges to it. And so we kind of want to have that and then sprinkle in a little more spice or dankness around that. Um, We don't want like a complete fruit forward experience all the time. We want an experience that comes off fruity, but also travels in different directions in your nose, on your palate. Um, We don't want to be one note. We want to have some real depth to it.
0: It, it has, you know, and I think that's a, a poignant point to make right now and one that we discovered really going back because, you know, we, we watch the march of time basically through our consistent issues year to year. Every year, we're going to do a logger issue. Every year, it's an IPA issue. Every year, there's a stout issue. And so, you know, for us in a year over year kind of watching time move, you can look back to the previous year and see what things looked like and then look. What we're doing now, and what breweries are sending, and what what, what we're tasting—it's it was a fascinating process through this IPA issue, realizing that the there are so many different expressions at the beyond you know juice bomb between you know beyond citrus, um, you know, and this kind of like let's just make pure juice approach to you know hazy and sweet IPAs. Uh, and it was fascinating to, you know, for also for me to see that uh, within context, these things didn't compete with themselves. That uh, in a flight of hazy IPAs, you could have dry expressions, you could have sweeter expressions. And um, it was not a certainty that the sweeter beers would score higher or, or uh, present themselves uh, in a more intense way. That uh, some of those drier beers, funkier beers, weirder, interesting uh beers actually stood out more in that kind of judging context because there was character to them because they had those layers of depth and because um yeah you know, they felt you know overall though it was remarkable how sophisticated IPA feels right now compared to how it is generally perceived that, you know, most people, if you were asking, well, IPA, well, it's either too bitter or it's too sweet um, because I think we have these mental caricatures of the style, you know, built around these kind of, you know, dueling East Coast or West Coast ideals. Um, but the reality of IPA today is much more complex and interesting than that. Um, even from within your own brewery, how do you all think about building that range of different experiences for people that enjoy your beer? Um and then also find some common thread through it so that people uh, who en- might enjoy these different expressions also still feel like it's a seller maker beer.
2: Well, I think Connor and I had a discussion a couple of years ago when, you know, what you're saying was really reigning true, and there was this East versus West divide. And those East Coast beers, uh, not all of them, of course, but were really yeast driven, really going for this like over the top fruit profile. Um,
1: Full body. Full
2: body. And we liked drinking those beers. But we decided that, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I can have a glass of OJ, but I'm not going to drink four glasses of OJ. I want to be able to go from beer to beer, glass to glass, and drink the same thing and really understand it, but never be turned off by any of the elements. And so we were talking and we're like, you know what? We do this thing with the Chico yeast. It's clean. It's clean. It really lets the hops express themselves. Uh, it doesn't get in the way. It doesn't present, like, this kind of artificial sweetness that turns us off. Let's really, like, let's drive this one home. Like, this is us. This is Cellar Maker. Like, let's double down on it, and let's explore it to its fullest. And it, it's, I don't know. We've just, like, uh, I can drink a lot of West Coast IPA. I can drink a lot of hazy West Coast IPA, but I can't drink that much, um, you know, typical, if you will, uh, East Coast IPA. Um, and I know that's just a very like general way of describing it, but I think you guys know what I mean.
0: Sure. So let's talk a little bit about what you mean when you say hazy West Coast IPA. Um, but before we do that, uh, Abe Beverage Equipment provides complete brewing and packaging solutions worldwide, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Abe offers brew houses, tanks, canning lines, and more for small to medium-sized brewers. Abe is equipped over 1,000 breweries worldwide and has the best customer service in the industry. Call Abe Beverage Equipment at 402-475-BEER or visit AbeEquipment.com to learn more. That's dot for complete brewing and packaging solutions. Um, so, Connor, obviously, when we talk about hazy West Coast IPA, there is a story that you've written a burst Perspective, and, along with a recipe in the new issue of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. And, and uh, you know, in an act of shameless self-promotion, I certainly encourage everyone to go out if you're not already a subscriber and pick up a copy of the magazine. Um, you know, but walk me through a little bit um, in your own words, in your own language about uh, how you all uh, envision this idea of, of hazy West Coast IPA and what that means in terms of you know brewing specs uh you know mash yeast hops etc
1: well conceptually i would say it's sort of something that we stumbled on um high dry hopping rates uh the yeast that was readily available that we could get a free pitch from neighboring friendly breweries thank you drakes um and really like you know we're the, a lot of the Southern Hemisphere hops would leave a haze in there, too. We noticed a correlation with that, uh, something with processing that we ha- still haven't totally wrapped our heads around. But, um, you know, these beers were staying hazy and you kind of look around at all the other iterations of IPA that exists and it's kind of like, you know, why do we have to have West Coast and then Northeast? And then let's just go straight to milk sugar, uh, you know, and, and brewed IPA and did it Like, why... Couldn't we play within that comfort zone? And, and to me, the hazy West Coast falls kind of right in between the the two, the West Coast and, and the NEIPA. Um, so, I mean, we were just making them for a while there. And it, it's just kind of the beer that came out of our system and we were really happy with it. And so I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I don't know. It, it's almost like people just started with these far-fetched ideas for IPA before they'd really tinkered in what was already a, a really happy place and, and in between those two styles of West coast and East coast.
2: Yeah. And you know, it, it comes off a little bit drier than, uh, uh, something that finishes at maybe four or five Plato, six Plato. Uh, we try to shoot for somewhere in that, like two, maybe as much as 3.25 Plato finishing gravity. Uh, there's a fair amount of bitterness, uh there's it's not like it lacks bitterness but there's some there which you know again like keeps the beer interesting and allows you to drink a good amount of it because your, your palate doesn't get fatigued with sweetness um and it's really aroma driven with uh I, I think that's it's tough to brew these beers at home to a certain degree unless you can get really good quality hops because uh, that's what's driving the ship um and uh our beer can still get even better because that is a lifelong
0: pursuit with uh, you know with this style and especially with a lot of these aromatic hops um you know though that differing levels of residual sweetness certainly affect how those hops present in a beer and can bring out different kinds of, of characters um you know and we've seen the exact same thing like Level of alcohol also has some impact again on how hops express, and uh, hops in a five percent beer may come across considerably differently than they do in an eight percent beer. Just bec- and, and that may be directly driven to the amount of uh, sweetness that's a, 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 a still allowed in a beer, be- you know, to balance out that kind of higher alcohol level. Um, talk to me a little bit about how. You know, especially in pale ales, that uh, you are you find ways to heighten those aromatic uh, characters of hops, despite um, you know having a, or, or, not just the aromatic character, also the, the kind of round flavor um, you know in those hops, uh, so that they don't get completely flattened in smaller beers. Our approach is,
2: I mean, a pale ale. I approach like a session IPA. Uh, It's going to have a little bit more residual sugar, so it doesn't come off anemic. Um, It's going to be really well dry hopped to, again, drive the the aroma. Um, And so I think of pale ale more as like this more drinkable IPA. And Connor and I are big proponents of pale ale. It gives us everything we want that an IPA has, but with less alcohol, so we can drink a little bit more of it. Or stop at two and feel perfectly well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the Session IPA thing that happened in, you know, shit, like 2011, um, it's kind of like we already had that. It's called pale ale. You're just not hopping it well enough. <laughs> and, and now because you want Session IPA to be different from pale ale, you're just going to skip, blow, you know, on a downward past the pale ale ABV and give me this 4.2 thing. Like that, I don't know, to me, you need a little more body in a, in a hoppy beer. Um so, all of our pale ales are generally in that mid fives range, and if you see me in the tap room, I'm drinking pale ale 90 percent of the time. It, like Tim said, it gives me everything I want out of a hoppy beer. Um, our pale ales are usually dry hopped at about two and a half pounds per barrel, um, so the aroma rips. Wow, there's there's you know less less alcohol flavor going on. It's it's just super super uh, thin in a good way. You know it's 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 crispy. It's not it's not lager crispy, but um, it, it's got all the things I want in IPA with uh, 5.7 instead of 7%. And uh, I've definitely had s- streaks here where I'm drinking so much pale ale that like a 7% IPA tastes like a huge beer to me all of a sudden because I'm just on the pale ale train. So, um, yeah, pale ale life. It,
0: it is an interesting trend to see this kind of, yeah, th- 4.2, 3.7 IPA thing come along. And I, I completely agree with you that that first generation of Session IPA were really horrible beers. Um, thin and ragged bitterness and, and, you know, with no body to, to kind of back up this uh, intensely sharp and jagged kind of, you know, cutting hop character. And we've learned so much since then. And, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, I talked to uh, Bell's about uh, brewing uh, lighthearted, same kind of thing, like sub 4% IPA. It is fascinating to see how even the techniques to brew these beers have a real commonality with, um, you know, this kind of brewing inspired through the New England IPA kind of tradition. Well, I shouldn't call it tradition, this New England IPA experience where thinking about the quality of the bitterness and the techniques necessary to produce a different feel of bitterness becomes a key component in that beer Talk to me a little bit about how, um, you know, you all use strategies to um, make sure that bitterness is firm, but also rounded and not an unpleasant bitterness, Uh, whether that's whirlpool or late, late, late hop side additions or uh, even using cold side additions of hops to add bitterness into the beer, even though, you know, shouldn't theoretically be possible.
2: We are exploring bitterness more now than we've ever explored it before. When we started, uh, I think we all ran screaming away from bitterness like a house on fire. Uh, we wanted—we were just so used to drinking tons, tongue scraping West Coast IPA that once you try the stuff that was kind of softer, lighter, maybe sweeter coming out of the East, you're like, "Wow, I really want to see how far down that road I can go." Um so you know, our, our, our beers at first, there was no hops in the boil whatsoever. It was all whirlpool. We wanted to get all the, the aroma we could and you know this kind of pure flavor, hop expression flavor. So it's big whirlpool, big dry hop. And uh, you know, over time, you start to kind of realize that your beer is a little lifeless when you do that. Um, so we started kind of just gradually increasing some hopping, you know, 15 minutes from the end. I think we started, oh, uh, then let's try it, maybe 30 minutes from the end. Oh, here's a 60. And kind of where we are now is all over the place, <laughs> uh, depending on the style. Yeah. Um, you know, West Coast IPA, I, I think we're making the best West Coast IPA we've ever made, and it is. On paper, the most bitter beer coming out of here, um, like at times two, times three. Uh, it's it's my West Coast IPA are more bitter on paper than my double IPAs were two three years ago. Um, Interesting. But they don't come off that way. They don't come off that way. They come off as structured. They come off as uh, you know a a story of flavor from the beginning of the sip to a minute after uh, because. If you can find the right type of bitterness, and that really depends on, you know, total bitterness and the hop selection, um, you can really create a beer that just like, uh, I don't know, it is is a great story from beginning to end. Um, And learning more about, I would say that was really influenced in learning how to create uh, balanced, bitter, crisp lager. And that kind of extended into West Coast IPA from there. Um, because you know you're using these low alpha hops in lager really kind of exploring how much hop matter you could put into a kettle without overwhelming this very slim beer Um, and that gets you thinking more about oh well here's a little bit of a bigger beer west coast IPA what can I do with that and now we're taking what we've learned from that and putting it into the more hazy stuff uh, trying to again achieve a nice balance between sweetness and bitterness but also how much hop matter, can we fit in there without throwing off that bitterness or getting astringent or, or, or whatnot?
0: So if I'm reading between the lines, are you in your hop, your, uh, you know, kind of IPA style beers using differing varieties for bitterness in order you know, to, to achieve different kinds of character to that, um, you know, versus just using high alpha uh, efficient uh, kind of bittering hops? Is there some magic to the the kind of varieties that you're you're bittering with or are you um using them in dual kind of purposes for both aroma and bittering and and, in using more common varieties i mean we're tried and tested on simcoe as a bittering hop we've
2: always used simcoe i love the flavor of it it's clean it adds uh you know a perfect amount of uh, american hop flavor i i honestly am still exploring this whole thing a lot um I'll throw Strata in the middle of the boil. I'll throw Citra. I'll try Galaxy. I've, I've tried them all. And it's not making the same beer all the time over and over as we do. It's hard to kind of pinpoint or pin down exactly what flavors coming from where. Um, but it's definitely a big there – there, there have been red flags where I'll put something in there and I'll be like, you know what? Nope, that is an obviously bad choice for a mid-boil hop. Uh, it gives me way too maybe like old school of flavor, uh, which might be good sometimes, but mostly for us, not, uh, it then, you know, a lot of these things are pH de- uh, dependent and alcohol, uh, sugar content dependent. So I, I don't know, I'm still learning a whole lot about it and I don't think I could really give you a perfect answer yet.
0: <laughs> Either that or it's so complex and contextual that, uh, we don't have enough time to go into all of the finer point details on that. Um, or have through your hops experimentation uh, lately over the last few months, um, has there been anything that you've discovered or learned that uh, was either counterintuitive or created another kind of aha moment, or um, you know, is just something that caught you off guard? There is something that I think we both figured out recently
2: that is just so weird and wonderful at the same time. Of just like we did selection with Yakima Chief uh, this past year and we, we selected this lot of mosaic that we were really blown away by on the table. Uh, it was just like blueberry and cotton candy, uh, some really amazing tropical fruit. And when we got the hops in, we opened up that first bag, and it was just so dark and earthy, and uh, like, it was almost like the, the hops had like closed in on themselves, and you couldn't smell any of those aromas that we smelt on the table. And we were really bummed because we have a lot of it. <laughs> and so we, you know, but we weren't discouraged. We had other hops, uh, lots of the of mosaic from other suppliers that were working for us. And we were still actually working on our 2018 contract, which was tasting, uh, better, than ever. better than ever. And that's kind of what happened with this one. After about four or five months, it suddenly became this whole new hop. So much more resembling what was on that table. Um, and that for us was really eye opening that, like, you, it, this stuff is processed so quickly and so perfectly in a way now that it could change it or it could capture it perfectly. But it's whatever you get is going to change over time.
1: Um, this is also, I think, the fourth year in a row that this has happened to us with Mosaic, where we select something. We obviously like it enough to select it. And then it gets processed in you know late November, early December, and we crack open a bag, and it's just disappointment on what is like a you know thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar purchase, right. and that's frustrating. And uh, last year, uh, our rep was just like, "Hey, can you do me a favor? Can you just brew a batch, like a ten barrel batch, with it, even though you don't like how it smells, and see how it goes?" and it actually performed really well in the beer. It's just the bag appeal, the aroma out of the bag is, was, it, it's very different from what you picked on the table. But, and you almost wonder if the company made a mistake or something like that. And then you try the finished beer and you go, no, 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 this, this has the stuff I remember. And then th- again, the last two or three years, same thing. Right around April, May, that hop becomes the hop that you thought it was. Um, specifically, this has happened to Mosaic. There are other varieties that definitely, they evolve. And strata. It, strata for sure. Um and it's kinda like if you want the, the best hop or well I mean the experience changes throughout the year, I guess is what I'm saying. So you if if a brewery some breweries are always like way behind on what they're using. Let's say that everyone's onto the new stuff by March, you know, that was harvested in September, processed in December, yada yada. The beer that you drink in March with all those hops that were harvested six months ago. You will never experience that exact flavor, even with those same lots of everything, same brewer, same system, blah, blah, blah. If you drink that beer again in September, it is not the same. They are, they are, I don't want to say they're fading, they're evolving. And some varieties might get better, some varieties just get different. Um, you know, the citrus might have the mandarin fade out and then there's kind of like a more of a piney, like it, it just, it's like that moment is fleeting. So enjoy that experience because the next batch is not going to be exactly the same, especially four months later, six months later.
0: Have you done any experimenting with the means in which you store those hops to either accelerate or decelerate that kind of process, whether, you know, obviously, you know, most hops vendors are going to store them you at know, freezing temperatures. A lot of breweries don't store at freezing temperatures. They store in cold box, you know, refrigeration temperatures. Um, Those can potentially have different impacts on aging of hops over time. Um, Have you played or toyed around with that at all to to see if that has any effect on this kind of evolution of the hop itself?
1: Um, We've definitely heard of breweries that would leave their hops out at room temp to accelerate the aging, which kind of goes against everything we are comfortable with. Right. Um, But we, we did end up doing that, right? I know, I know it happened I know Alvarado Street's done it with great results. We, uh,
2: the time when I started to think about actually doing it was kind of when these hops started to come around so I didn't need to right, but right. it is definitely something it is something I want to try because uh, it makes sense. I mean if you open up a fresh bag of hops, smell it and then you come back to it 10, 15 minutes later, there's a good chance it's going to smell different um, good, for better or for worse. Um but there is evolution there and um obviously storing warm is going to change it.
0: Yeah, this is it's, it's fascinating how complex this gets and how uh so few rules that we people can actually build for how to understand these. And as soon as we think we understand one portion of it, you realize that we've now just created a whole bunch of whole series of new questions that we can also uh, need now need to kind of pursue and answer around this. Um, Are there any hops varieties that uh, you find uh, are bigger in this kind of development process or others that uh, kind of maintain a more consistent stability over that time? what are your big changers and what are your big not changers? Uh,
2: I mean any, any hop that can really swing in an earthy direction seems to evolve over time. Um, strata mosaic. Uh, I really haven't seen it much with like citra or Simcoe. We've had
1: citra get better too.
2: We've had citra get better, but I wouldn't say it went from like a darker aroma to a brighter. It was just like the fruit evolved in a different way. Hmm. Um, but uh, but also we select for like pretty fruit forward Citra and try to stay away from uh, any of the kind of darker aromas or, or, or onion and, and, and garlic right um, Arm, armpit armpit yeah like I said earlier we're we're learning so much about like selection and what we get after selection and how that all changes it's I think the past two years has been that has been like the, like you said the biggest aha moment right.
1: But it's also a total, like, the more you learn, the less you knew. You realize the less you know. You know, one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. For
0: sure. For sure. Let's let's talk a little bit about New Zealand hops again. Uh, obviously, this is a big thing for you all. You all have been using New Zealand hops uh, uh, for a really long time and have more experience than uh, a lot of other brewers out there in the world of brewing. Um, talk to me about varieties, uh, you know, obviously we've already talked about Nelson Sauvin, you know, but talk to me about, uh, uh, other New Zealand hop varieties, how you think about them, how you describe the, the flavors in them and, uh, some of your favorites in that realm, uh, what they can kind of contribute in, uh, in making those flavor contributions to end beers.
1: I'd say that aside from Tim and I, there's like a simple term we use, but like for hops in general, not just New Zealand, but there are hops that drive the bus, and, and then there are hops that certainly do not. And aside from Nelson, I, I want to say all the other New Zealand varieties that we brew with, at least, like Montueca is a really soft, uh, subtle hop. It's really nice and floral and spritzy lime. And uh, we love using it, but we would never put it in an IPA at more than like 30 yeah. percent and expect it to contribute and to punch. Um Rawaqa is a great hop. There's like a lot of like lore around Rawaqa because it's so hard to get, and you don't even want to know what we went through to get the smallest amounts of it back in like 2014, <laughs> um, and, and what we paid. But uh, it is a really cool hop. It's a unique flavor. It doesn't it, it on the uh, the good old flavor um, spider graph kind of thing that a lot of hop companies show. Rawaqa lands in an area that nothing else gets close to, um, but at the same time, it's like anywhere from four two to like six three alpha. So it also does not does not drive. It, it's a it's a mellow hop, so we use it in blonde ales and pale ales. But we're not making like Rawaka triple IPAs. Like that just kind of seems really expensive to use the amount that would make it really speak. And then that kind of excess of a low alpha hop, I don't, I don't know. Get really grassy. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a recipe for success.
2: New Zealand hops for us have always been kind of the white whale of all the hops. Uh, you know galaxy is just such a conundrum that we don't even really pay much attention to it anymore other than, you know, trying a couple of different lots and hopefully we get something good. Uh, but that's
0: like the, the what do you mean Soviet by that? Union over there. What do you
1: mean by that? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier about how like chefs will brew or sorry, <laughs> chefs will, will cook with whatever speaks to them that week at the farmer's market or from their supplier or whatever. You could, you, you could look at, like, our hypothetical brew history calendar, whatever, and there are certain, like, six to ten-month swings where we just don't make a damn Galaxy beer because the Galaxy we're getting is plasticky, it's astringent, it's weird, it's overripe, it's, it has no fruit, and it's got this big licorice, ginger, anise character. Um, we have been so hot and cold with Galaxy, and the customer reaction to that that word on the label is so exciting. Um, And right now we actually have the best Galaxy we've probably had in, I don't know, three or four years. Um, So we're brewing with it. But then once that runs out, it's back to the Galaxy Roulette, as we like to call it. And um, it it definitely like – I mean it totally sucks to open up a box of hops. It costs like 700 bucks and you smell it and you go – and and what do you do then? Like we're not going to sell it to another brewery. So
2: I don't know what hop products Australia is like. And you know means the end is here but like they are they seem pretty closed off to the brewing world and they kind of do their thing over there i can't really think of like major craft brewers who work closely with them
1: their transparency is pretty much zero uh and brewers like transparency we're trying to learn and we're trying to learn together i mean tim's working with yakima chief right now on a on a project that ideally helps everyone make better beer um Hpa like I don't have an email I don't have a contact. Uh, apparently the lots get blended, um, like all of them. You know a lot of lots get blended in the USA as well, but um, all the galaxies blended. So there could be this beautiful lot that just sings, but they're blending in the ginger and the licorice, um, and it's super expensive. And then there's all this hype. It's it's kind of really annoying. Um, if you spend that much money per year on anything else in any other industry, you've got to say and. You get to shake someone's hand eventually Um, we don't hate it but and we play the game with it and and but it's it's kind of like that's the hop that we're still stuck in 2013 on that's the hop where we find the good lot and we're like hey hey." so we're gonna buy our entire contract drop 20 grand right now and get this lot because it's so good but we're playing the games that we used to play six seven years ago um, cause it's the only way to get good stuff. Uh, and even then it's not always that great. So, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's not, galaxy's not cool. I mean, when it's good, it's good, but, oh,
0: it's an expensive, uh, bet to place, huh? Um, so what do you do with, uh, this galaxy that you've now paid an exorbitant amount of money for, um, and are not in love with, you know, it may not be bad per se, but it's just not. You know that kind of height of it. Uh, do you start blending that in with some other other hops to kind of uh, you know just add a small hint of complexity in certain beers, or, or you know what's uh, what's the end game on that?
1: We've definitely thrown them out right at the gate. Really, uh, Tim and I did that. We did that more with Nelson uh, before we worked with Freestyle, and it, it, their their entire 2016 harvest was just oxidized garbage, and there were two or three. 44 pound bags, you know, and it's 14, 15 bucks a pound. So, you know, we're talking 600 bucks ish. And and there, it's a full 44. So it's not like you cut a little right. 11 pound bag. And we would cut those open and just look at each other like, well, this smells like uh, rotting banana bread and, uh, you know, onion and diesel fuel. And there's really nothing we can do with this. And it just went straight into the green bin. Uh, I think we. That sucks.
2: We have the luxury of. Um, you know, the company's doing all right. Uh, I, I am not a proponent for sprinkling in a pound here, a pound there of hops I don't like into a beer. Like that's not the beer I want to create. Um, I'm a huge advocate for only using what we love. Um, and, you know, I'm not trying to look, this isn't a sales pitch. It's, this is like a true belief of mine. Um, I can taste a pound of Columbus in an IPA. So I can taste a pound of Nelson that's shit in an IPA, you know? So, I don't know. I, you I, can
1: certainly taste a pound of Sabro in any beer. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I definitely steer away from that.
1: Not a Sabro fan? We,
2: uh, we like Sabro. It's just, uh, it, it can take over a beer really quickly.
1: The, uh, the best Sabro beer we make is 100% Sabro. And it just doubles down on the weird and really just full cannonball. And I love that beer. And then any other beer that has more than like 5% Sabro... Kind of doesn't really get me so excited. I don't know. Coconuts not what I'm looking for in IPA. I want it to to taste like tropical fruit and uh, pine trees. So,
0: are there any other American varieties of hops that uh, you know, especially as uh, you know, hops growers and and uh, and uh, hops uh, companies are pulling together uh, new and experimental things that uh, have been you found really exciting or offer a kind of different point of view to hops.
2: We were really having a good time with Idaho 7 for a little bit. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that's an experimental hop, but, like, we really got on the bandwagon there. Uh, lately, I feel like what we're using uh, kind of lost some of the luster that we saw in it earlier, so we haven't actually been using much lately. But I think that hop's really, really cool. Uh, get a lot of, gr- like, uh, like white gummy bear pineapple from it. Um,
1: we, but a lot of dirt, too, is, yeah, what we're, can get a is what, earthy where we're we getting though. down on it.
2: H a a lot of the HBC varieties that we mess with, uh, six, three, zero. Uh, we just got in six, nine, two for the first time and, and just released a beer with that. And I really, speaking of Sabro that has some Sabro heritage, which you can kind of taste, but it's like the right amount of Sabro. It's pretty, uh, you know, like yeah. restrained. Um, but it's, it's mostly like really kind of modern American citrus. So it's like uh, maybe an updated centennial or something.
1: Um, what are the ones? Uh, we played around with HBC three four four quite a bit. That one's very different, and we we actually started like you know putting these into beers uh, that were becoming like recurring batches. And it's like the thing that you want to avoid generally is putting these hard to get ingredients. But um, we just keep getting it as much as we can, you know. Uh, to, to and if we couldn't, again, it's the benefit of that ten barrel argument we were talking about earlier. It's like well we got a little bit of it, one more batch or if we don't, and, but we're a rotational brewery with no set schedule. So if we can't get more, then we'll move on to something else and, and see what else is cool. Uh, we definitely tinkered around with the South African hops for a while. Um, when AB and Bev got involved with that, you know, in general, we just kind of went, we don't want to align with this. Sure. Um, those are cool, but they're, they're definitely in the Sabro direction. Um, and then right now, I mean, I think we're, we're not running out of experimentation per se. I would actually say, when we went with Jason Peralt uh, on a tour of the experimental field in September, you know, know, Citra and Mosaic are in the 300s. Now they're in like the 800s and the 900s and there's some really cool hops that are probably two to five years away from coming into beers. Um, But right now we're actually not buying that many new varieties. We kinda, Strata has our heart. I mean, Strata, is on the level with Citra Mosaic Simcoe to me, which, you know, that's a big deal, I think, for any new hop to crack into that quality level. Uh, It does it all, it can be a great single hop, Uh, it's a great blender, it doesn't step on toes, it doesn't dominate or bully in a beer. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of been, I, I know a lot of people are using that, so that's not as unique of an answer, but.
2: We have no tasting room right now, so everything's getting canned. Right and experimentations at a minimum um and and if it was a different world we'd probably list five more hops for you but that's not where we're at right
0: now. no you know that's all right and that that raises that other question uh you know beyond ingredients and beyond this you know in a tasting room environment where people can come and uh you know get some smaller pours of things and try and want you know there's this inherent kind of exploratory philosophy and motivation psychology for a lot of craft beer drinkers that drives this, you know, that the thing that brought people into craft beer was wanting to try new things and uh, being excited about being able to try those new things. Um, but this kind of COVID-19 era that we're in, you know, since uh, February, March has been just been a dramatic change to that. We've seen it even when we've pulled uh reader's, Asking about their buying habits, and it seems like people have gone from taking risks to not taking risks, uh, both on the consumer side and on the brewer side. That um, you know, consumers trust breweries that they've already had trust in, and will continue to go with them on some things. Uh, but the ability for a brewery to say, "Hey, you should try this," um, and have people sample something, you know, in a three or four ounce. Uh, You know, spot or a taster in the tap room versus then having to buy a four pack of it. I mean, that's a giant gap in risk for a lot of consumers, and we're watching consumers kind of do the opposite and say they're going back. Uh, It's been the strangest dynamic to watch to see like mainline core, large national craft brands um, who had been hammered by this local and regional trend in craft beer that you know has taken taken a lot of business. Are, have been pretty successful through this and we're watching like brands, you know, kick back up and sell because people are just familiar with those kinds of things. Um, from your perspective as a brewer, yeah. How do you balance that kind of need to also keep learning yourselves and pushing yourselves to be creative and do things and try new things, uh, you know, with also this idea that you don't want, you, you can't, you want to create something that, uh, your own customers are not necessarily going to want or take a flyer on with you. And then also, you know, as a corollary to that, how do you continue to maintain that trust? Because again, when people can't sample something before they buy it, they have to believe that it's going to be good and they have to have that kind of faith and trust in you that uh, that you're going to deliver this if they're not familiar with it.
1: The one way that we have experimented during this is a series of beers that kind of, feeds all of those concerns that you just mentioned uh and was designed before the pandemic but uh we have a whole series it's a really simple format it's called it's the word mo to imply mosaic and then enter the second hop here and it's a two hop ipa and we started with the, the the stuff that made most sense we did most citra mo galaxy mo Simcoe, mo nelson and but then with the experimentals the idea is that if a new experimental variety isn't that great, it's not strong enough. Whatever it is, um, you still got fifty percent mosaic, and mosaic's awesome. So we've released in can. We did a Mo HBC thirty um, during the pandemic. Uh, that was a beer that had never been made before, brand new label. So there's definitely some consumer trust, but we are trying to still be a little bit of who we really are on the innovation front and put new stuff out and. Uh, right now we're doing mixed cases that you buy online. So it, it's a lot of beer. We just started doing half cases. Um, but a beer like that, you know, I think people got eight cans of that out of 24. So you definitely need a little bit of trust in us um, that we're not going to put a hop in there that you don't want. Uh, but that's kind of us trying to still be the tap room, you know, innovators and do new stuff. Um, so we did those two beers. And then uh, we have a new brand coming out in like two weeks that's – it it's a Nelson Citra pale. I I kind of looked at everything we make and I'm like, I can't believe we haven't done this simple combo, kind of a guaranteed home run on the combo front, but it still is a new brand with a new name and yada yada. So, uh, you know, trying to keep it interesting, exciting, um, but definitely not as risky as we might be knowing that a draft batch would just kind of get gobbled up in two or three weeks. And if it, if it wasn't what we wanted, we would move on. Uh, it's, you know, I don't want to say we're playing it safe, but I guess you kind of have to. It's uh, survival mode. You know, people rely on you for jobs and all that. So,
2: we feel really fortunate that, you know, we are a very small brewery. We don't have much reach as far as where our beer goes. You know, we go down to San Diego for a tap takeover a couple of times a year, maybe LA once or twice a year, but that's it. It's, it's just San Francisco and the immediate Bay Area. But when the pandemic hit, and we started doing mail-order beer, uh, people from all over the state were ordering it. And I, that's been really amazing and, and, and somewhat overwhelming to a certain extent how our small brewery has a, actually a much bigger name than I ever realized. Um, and I think it goes back to what you were saying where when, when finances get a little weird and you're tightening your belt and you don't know what the future holds – you're not going to take a big chance on some no-name brewery down the street who could be making great beer, but you want to buy the stuff that's going to make you happy and you don't want to waste a cent buying something else. And it really showed that our reputation has, you know, traveled far and wide and, um, it's, it's pretty exciting. And, uh, I feel very fortunate that, uh, people have heard such good things of us or, or think such good things of us in general. It's, it's been awesome.
1: All those times we just wanted to go drink beer with Bob at Highland park, uh, and do a tap takeover, <laughs> uh, actually turned into something. So yeah, thanks Bob. Thanks LA.
0: You know, it is an interesting one and in the, you know, though that same spirit of experimentation, especially in the state of California, um, survives in that now out of market, you know, people from Southern California, um, you know, can now order your beer and, uh, and they can get their experimentation in with a brand that they're familiar with, but that they haven't had ready access to just because of this. So and it's it's kind of an interesting and, and fascinating new world for, for selling beer, um, looking off into the future, uh, for seller maker, for you all individually, um, what does success look like for you? Have you achieved it? Do you see it somewhere out there in the future? Um, And how will you define it to know uh, when you have achieved it?
1: I think Tim and I are both extremely proud of what we've done here at this location in San Francisco for seven years. And I think in like 2014, 2015, when like CBC was in Denver that year, and we're seeing all these breweries that started out a little smaller than us are about the same size. And, Everyone in those years, I mean, there was the was sky's the limit, right? Grow big, grow huge. We're, we're, we're going to be 30 times bigger in two years than we are now. And it's just like, whoa. And we had seen breweries that we really loved out here go huge and the quality didn't translate. And really for us both being so committed to quality, we we stayed small. And there's definitely a lot of times where it kind of felt like, why aren't we just blowing it up and going huge and getting a huge facility And um, I think we're kind of, like, ready to to do something else as far as uh, not massively increasing the capacity. But um, we're certainly looking to see what we can find that might be a a second location like this in the East Bay um, that's this size, maybe two times, maybe three times. I don't really want to go bigger than that. Uh, We have control over all the beer right now. Uh, We have relationships with all the people who carry it on draft. I trust them to serve it fresh. All of our invoices say you have to keep this cake cold and tap it within within seven days of when you receive it. Um, And people abide by that. And uh, we're not just trying to be annoying or be disruptors. We just want the beer to taste really good when the customer gets it. And again, like I mentioned earlier, some customers are going to get that. They're going to go, I know this batch just came out because Instagram talked about it six days ago. Some people aren't going to know that. They're just going to go, the aroma on this is crazy compared to – that distributed beer that went through five warehouses to get here. So we don't want to go huge. That's never been an interest. Uh, We like being small. We like keeping quality big. Um, But now is also uh, not the worst time to kind of be seeing what's on the market. So um, I definitely, my eyes are wide open and uh, curious to see what I can find. So
2: as far as, you know, expansion goes for me personally, I've always felt like, I don't know people have told us we've made good beer for a while but i think only in the past year and a half maybe two years has our beer really got to a point that i'm like extremely proud of uh feel really good about it and uh ready to take to more and more people um i don't know i, I didn't ever want to be the brewery that made average beer and sell it and send it everywhere uh now that i think i'm, I'm I'm really doing some of the best stuff I've ever done, and and at a, at a very high level, I, I personally feel ready to uh, you know, hand that pint glass over to someone who's a little further away, but then that gives you all different challenges of more freshness issues and, and shipping and wholesale or whatever means you're going to get that beer out there, and that's something we've always worried about, so we've got a... could be a rocky road after this, but...
0: Always new problems to solve. Yeah, for sure. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the US, Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Rye Malt gives spicy, grainy, and bready notes with suggestions of vanilla and sweet dough. Brumation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brewhouses. Spike is your source for premium home and nano systems. Abe is your trusted source for complete brewing and packaging solutions. And, of course, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Go to beerandbrewing.com, become a subscriber today, and uh, you'll even get the new IPA issue when you do featuring an article uh, from and recipe from Connor here of Cellar Maker. Um, thank you guys for joining me and talking to me on the podcast today. I appreciate it. If people want to learn more about Cellar Maker, where do they find you all?
1: Uh, Cellarmakerbrewing.com Instagram Cellarmakerbrewing and uh, yeah thanks thank you so much for having us yeah thanks a lot
0: thanks a lot cheers
1: thank you cheers
0: this podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew